Sean and Ed's do baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. I thought you went first for some yeah, reason. Yeah, it's not Ed's and Sean do baseball. <laughs> it's Sean and Ed's do baseball. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are a... Bi-weekly. Bi-weekly history podcast. Uh, baseball history podcast, right. that is. Uh, to be specific, because we are specific. We mm-hmm. cover baseball history. Uh, two friends shared stories. One prepares a story. The other one has no idea what they're about to hear. Uh, and I'm that lucky person today, but something I have up my sleeve that Edzie hasn't heard yet. What? Edzie. Rugnand Odor. What about him? Is no longer a Texas Ranger. Okay. I like him a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> I still hate him. I, mean, I do too, but... He was released. He was released today from so the Rangers. So he's nobody. He's nobody. I know that. <laughs> 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 uh, so it's what about the other Rugnit Odor though? I, I, is he oh, still on the Rangers? I have no idea. Okay. If he is, he's not on the MLB team. Why uh, does he have the same name? It's That's confusing. what I want to know. Uh, spring training's coming to an end. Uh, maybe you were listening to this on opening day. Maybe you're listening to it the day before. Either way, baseball is back. It's back, baby. Oh, and we're actually going to get 162 games minus a few COVID games. That's for sure. Yeah, no uh, doubt. <laughs> but at the same point, oh, it's going to be so great to uh, sit down and watch some baseball this week. Uh, and just every – do you get like that first month where you're so into it for a couple weeks and then by like the first week of May you're just like – It sort of wanes a bit. You're like, okay, it's here. It's going to be here for every day for the next – Yeah. Four months yeah. or so, five months at that point or whatever. So still avid baseball fans, but there's that excitement, that buildup, and then that like kind of like, oh yeah, it's on every day. Okay, and yeah. You go through, well, you go through the dog days, you know. Yeah. So um, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So uh, we're, I guess uh, we're not going to talk too much about spring training because we're not insiders at all. But no. uh, before uh, we get into the story, before I get into the story, make sure you follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and Instagram at Doing Dot Baseball. And find us on, well, you found us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but encourage your friends to find us there too. And of course, give us a review. Reviews are great. Ratings are great. Yes, we would love them. Yeah, just just do it. I don't care. You could just write a sentence about... You could say terrible things as long as you put five stars. Yeah. We don't care. <laughs> five stars and think of the worst thing to say. Yeah. So excited. Uh, yeah, it feels like a while since I've heard one, so let's, let's do this. Are you buddy. ready? Are you ready yeah. to get into it? Well... As usual, most of the stories that I tell you have been on my mind for a while, Mm -hmm. and this one's no different, but uh, this story is actually about a story. Okay. I I guess you could argue that they're all a story about a story, but uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, It's about how every person's tale as our subject's one-time manager once put, uh, it's not over until it's over. It's a story about how one's life is constantly unfolding uh-huh. and how if everything isn't okay, it can't be the end. All right. Okay. So we got Yogi Berra. Yeah. And, that's uh, a Yogi Berra reference there. And uh, wow. So yeah. 
Wait, what was that last line? If if everything's if it, not okay, if everything isn't okay. It can't be the end. All right. There's still more to come. All right. Well, that's intriguing. Yeah. Okay. I have rebuttals, but I just want to hear about yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. Well. Th- okay. So this is part biography, part book report. Cool. Okay. When I first began looking to expand the baseball section of my library here at home. This particular book continuously was in the top three to five of all the lists I came across that combed through the countless writings on the great American pastime. I thought to myself, how exciting could the journal of a marginal pitcher looking to stay in the league on a team that barely lasted one season in the majors be? Well, Sean, it's very exciting and not at all what I expected. I believe you bought me this book, and I, I did, did not start it You yet. didn't start it yet. No, Good. Well, you I might waited. not be able to start it for an episode or two. Damn it! But uh, uh, there are counts going on. There are counts of the goings-on on the field, sure, but a baseball book, no, not entirely. Ball four, as Boughton's second wife, Paula Kerman, put it in the foreword she wrote for the 2001 edition, was a book that any anthropologist would be proud to pen. Quote, Ball Four was an extraordinary study of a strange and isolated tribe from inside the tribe. It was a universal fable. Which surprised me when I first heard that. I didn't really understand how it could be a universal fable, but it is. Yeah, uh, I've, I've always wondered about this book because same, same thing. I've, I've, I heard what it's about and it's never, I've never bought it. I've never read into it. I've never looked into it mm-hmm, at all. Mm-hmm. So... So the tribe, it, it, like, I don't want to get too far ahead of you now, but is the tribe within a tribe the pitchers within the ball club? No. All right. No, it's just, it's, it's, you're, you're overthinking it, I All think. Right. It's just simply a view inside the world of baseball. And I think being the age that we are now, mm-hmm. we sort of take that for granted. And maybe that's why you think that it's a little deeper than it is, because yeah. at this time, you know... It was like Fort Knox getting into the baseball world, right? Yeah. So anyway, it was a book that finally made me at peace with the thought of buying a New York Yankees jersey, but only if it's number 56. That's a big step for you. I know. Number 56 for Mr. Boughton, the most interesting man in baseball history, the renegade, the storyteller, the inventor, the stonemason, and perhaps my new favorite player. The Bulldog, Jim Bouton. Amazing. Yes. I was say, Lenny Randall has something to say about that. I, I, w- I thought you would say something about yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm not, I'll admit, I don't go into that much detail in this episode of why he's the most interesting man, but I think there's going to be a second part. There's but. definitely, definitely going to be a second part, and I'm going to have to wait from reading. Right, right. Uh, So the uneducated synopsis of this groundbreaking book is that it's the story of a pitcher struggling to find his way back into the starting rotation of a major league club. Jim Bouton, long removed from his glory days of winning two games in the 63 World Series for the champion Yankees, and 39 wins over the course of 63 and 64, joins the ranks of the now-defunct Seattle Pilots and attempts to make it back with a knuckleball having lost the power behind his devastating fastball. And the truth is, at some point, we all work on a knuckleball. And I think that's why the book stands the test of time. I I love how the pilots get shoehorned into almost like every other episode. It It is definitely... It's kind of cathartic. Has anybody... Has anybody... Have you seen Brockmire? 
Uh, not with not with much depth yet. No, I know you gave me the seasons, but oh yeah, I there, haven't sat down. There's a great episode that kind of reflects on the everybody works on a knuckleball eventually. Everyone has a knuckleball <laughs> yeah, at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that's definitely true. Um, I don't think this book would have ever really been finished if Boughton had not died in 2019. It was re- it was first released in 1970 to great controversy, and over the years Jim felt that wrath. But as time went on, though, and Balfour was released again every 10 years with an additional epilogue by the author, the trajectory of the story evolved and we learned more about the psyche of Boughton, his out-of-the-box thinking, his mastering of Zen, and ultimately his redemption among his peers. James Allen Boughton was born March 8, 1939 in Newark, New Jersey. His father, George Hempstead Boughton, of French and English heritage, was attending night school at Columbia when Jim was born, but later became a business executive. His mother, Trudy Vischer Boughton, was German and Dutch. Jim was the first of three sons, followed by Bob and Pete, and spent the first 15 years of his life in suburban New Jersey in Rochelle Park in Ridgewood. He recalled spending much of his spare time trying to make money, delivering newspapers, collecting pop bottles and old newspapers, mowing lawns, and washing cars. I don't see what the old newspapers I don't understand why you would collect old newspapers either. (laughs) Well, maybe. I guess they recycle the paper? I guess. I don't know. Everything else. Do they do that these days? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the Boughton boys were baseball fans, supported the New York Giants, and often went to the polo grounds to watch the team seek out autographs, and, and try to receive retrieve baseballs during batting practice. Jim's favorite pitcher was the barber, Sal Magley, and joked that his brother looked as much like Willie Mays as possible when he'd step into the batter's box very tall and right-handed. Sarcasm, I, I assume. Yes. Uh, growing up, Jim wasn't very big and also not particularly athletic, However, he had a drive in him and a hard-nosed attitude that would make him successful in almost all of his life's endeavors. His father's job took the family to Chicago Heights, Illinois. His new high school, Bloom Township, was much larger, and he found he could make neither the football nor the basketball team, and he barely made the baseball team. In his sophomore year, he was known as Warm-Up Boughton because the coach would let him only warm up until the final game. Ah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, bummer. I thought he was like the bullpen catcher. No. No. <laughs> and no. the coach was like, "Hey, warm him up, Belton or yeah. Belton. Yeah. What, what's his name? Belton. Belton. Jim Belton. And and it's spelled a little bit differently, right? It's B O U T O N. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought it was Jim Bowden when I'd hear about this book Jim Bowden. and maybe I'm just getting baseball writer and baseball writer mixed up maybe (laughs) um he later had success both for the high school team pitching a no hitter in his senior season and in american legion ball he threw a variety of pitches including a knuckleball but he did not throw particularly hard quote i learned the grip from the back of a cereal box but because i was so little i couldn't grip the ball with only three fingers like the pros so i learned to hold it with all five fingertips and as a result i throw it harder than anybody else Interest. That's how it, it he wrote That's, that in the book later the book. on as yeah. an adult. And I bet that high school coach has cake on his face now. Probably. Yes. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, probably uh, dead. I guess, but... I guess we'll let Bowden start this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he's probably dead. Yeah. Yeah. So who cares? Bowden described learning the pitch as a kid throwing to his brother. When it finally began to knuckle for the young hurler, his younger brother lost the pitch 
It struck him in the knee. He writhed on the ground as he yelled, What a great pitch! What a great pitch! (laughs) (laughs) Jim enrolled at Western Michigan University with the assurance that a good season for the freshman baseball team would earn him a scholarship for his sophomore year. He pitched well and got the scholarship and then played in a Chicago amateur league during the summer of 1958. He pitched two great games in the league tournament and suddenly professional scouts were coming around and asking him to work out. George Boughton wrote a letter to all 16 major league teams telling him that his son was planning to sign a contract by Thanksgiving, advising them to get their bids in. The New York Yankees' Art Stewart offered $30,000 and the Boughton signed in late summer. Wow. Yeah. So he's like writing it and he's like, I don't know if you heard, but, but my, my son, son is ready to sign. Yeah. So, you know, Thanksgiving, we got to make plans. Yeah. Just hurry this yeah. up. Hurry his, it up. His dad knows what the fuck to do when it comes to getting his son into these places. He even, I didn't like mention it in yeah. this like actual writing, but it tells in the book that when the Yankee guy was the only guy to like fall for this ruse. Yeah. And when the Yankee guy showed up, he printed like fake letters with letterheads of like all the other teams and like strewn them around his office. So he's like, you know, the Yankee guy comes in, he's like, fuck, he's got offers from the Phillies and the Cleveland's here. Oh my God. Like, okay, we got to sign this guy. Here's (laughs) $30,000. That is spectacular. Yeah. So Jim also told stories of his dad writing letters to Western Michigan, posing as a fan while Jim was still in high school. Mr. Boughton would cut out Jim's newspaper clippings and send them off to Western Michigan with letters saying things like, here's a young man who could really help our Broncos next year. (laughs) Signed a Western Michigan baseball fan. (laughs) I just want to know if he was doing the same for his other sons or if he was just like, that's just Jim. That's just Jim. Jim's the only one who's got a chance. Yeah, no, I'm going to go all in on Jim. You kids can help maybe writing some letters, making some letterheads. I don't know. How's your Photoshop skills? Uh, The 20-year-old Boughton split the 1959 season between two Class D clubs, the Auburn Yankees in the New York Penn League and Kearney in the Nebraska State League, and by his own account was, quote, ready to love the baseball establishment. In fact, he wrote, I thought big business had all the answers to any question I could ask. As far as I was concerned, the club owners were benevolent old men who wanted to hang around the locker room and were willing to pay a price for it. So there never would be any problem about getting paid decently. I suppose I got that way by reading Arthur Daly in the New York Times and reading about those big salaries. I read that Ted Williams was making 125000 and figured that Billy Goodman made 60000 That was, of course, a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> he learns the hard way. Uh, he did not per- pitch particularly well. A combined 3-8 and eight with a 5.52 ERA in 22 games in 1959, but showed enough promise to get promoted to Greensboro in the Class B Carolina League for 1960. There, he finished 14-8 and eight with a league-leading 2.74 ERA and followed in 1961 with a 13-7 record and a 2.97 ERA for Amarillo in the AA Texas League. Both teams won their league's pennants easily, and Boughton was one of the principal reasons. 
So he's he's finding it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rough rookie year, but he, yep. he's a control guy, right? Yeah. So sometimes you just got to become you got to get comfortable as a control guy, That's right. right? That's right. Can't just blow people away right away. You got to get that heartbeat down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Find your spot. Yeah, and he's not overpowering. At yep. all. He's never been over. I mean, he's got a fastball, but he's he's not an overpowering guy. Yeah. So Bouton went to spring training with the Yankees in 1962 without much expectation that he would make the team. A string of good outings earned him a spot as the last man on the staff, however. Bouton joked that the first time he tried out for the Yankees, he was given a number like 129 and a half. The higher the number, the less chance they think you have of making the club. The number he received in spring training for 1962 was 56. And despite the fact that it was a number indicative of someone not likely to make the club, he defied the odds and claimed a spot in the rotation. Pete Sheehy... The clubhouse attendant for the Yankees later said, I've got a better number for you. I can give you 27. But Bouton wore 56 for the rest of his career. Quote, I'm still not close to making the club. <laughs> he claimed I, to justify his choice. I love that. It's just like, well, the higher your number is, or the lower your number is, the better player you are. <laughs> just, I got you 27. All it'll cost you is a lobster dinner. <laughs> Pretty much. He didn't want it. He took 56, remind him of his roots. Quote, I signed my first major league contract at Yankee Stadium 15 minutes before they played the Star Spangled Banner on opening day 1962. That's because my making the team was a surprise. But I'd had a hell of a spring. Just before the game was about to start, Roy Hamey, the general manager, came into the clubhouse and shoved a contract under my nose. Here's your contract, he said. Sign it. Everybody gets 7000 their first year. <laughs> Jim's like, uh, is this true? Is this don't ask your team. Don't, don't talk to your teammates. Don't just don't, 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 don't talk. Everybody does. Yep. Mickey, Everybody. Mickey, he did. Yep. He did for sure. Yep. So Jim goes out and has an okay first season with the Yanks. Pitched only once in April, but got his first start in the Yankees' 21st game on May 6th at home against the Washington Senators. On that day, he allowed seven hits and seven walks, but held on for a complete game, eight nothing shutout. How the fuck is that happen? I don't know. I, I don't know. How, how do you fourteen, let 14 base, runners. base runners on and not allow a run? Baseball's so weird. <laughs> and when complete game, why shutout. would that? No, that would <laughs> yeah. never happen no. nowadays. No, the moment you got over walk like four, you'd be out of the game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, for the season, the 23-year-old Bouton pitched 36 times, including 16 starts, and finished 7-7, seven and seven, 133 innings pitched, 1.3-ish whip, 95 ERA+. Plus. So, not a superstar, but... What was the ERA? Oh, ERA+. Plus. ERA+. ERA+. Plus. Plus. Oh, okay, 95. 95 ERA+. Plus. I thought you said his, his ERA was 9.5. No, 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 no. <laughs> You're like, not bad. Not no. too bad. <laughs> no, no, no. no. ERA+. Play, ERA plus. So he was a little below average. Yeah, so not, not too bad, but not a superstar. He's the last guy in the rotation. Yeah, he's so, a fifth starter. Yeah, so uh, the Yankees beat the Giants in the World Series that year, but Bouton didn't pitch. Uh, so we're in the reserve clause era. Mm-hmm. So he's got to renegotiate next year, right? So well, the team can just be like, sign this. Everybody right. makes 8,000 year too. So Bouton says in the book, all winter I thought about what I should ask for and finally decided to demand $12,000 and settle for $11,000. Dan Topping Jr., who was the owner's son at the time, uh, was the guy who was supposed to sign all the lower echelon players like me, handed me a contract and said, 
Just sign here on the bottom line. It was for 9000 if I made the team. I'd get 7000 if I didn't. Ugh. Don't forget your World Series share, Topping said. You can always count on that. Ooh. Which you can't. Which you can't. But, I mean, it's the Yankees in the early 60s. Yeah. Like, come on. Well, the, the days were winding they down. They were. They the were. The days were winding but down. these guys just, you know, they, they just, it Walk. was a given back then. That's, uh, I guess so, yeah. Whatever. Anyway, fine, I said. I'll sign the contract that guarantees me 10000 more at the end of the season if we don't win the pennant. Ooh. He was shocked. Oh, we can't do that. Then what advantage is it to me to take less money? Well, that's what we're offering. I can't sign it. Then you'll have to go home. All right, I'll go home. So he's fucking not backing down. Well, give me a call in the morning before you leave. That's what (laughs) Topping said. So Jim calls the next morning and Topping says to come over and see him. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We don't usually do this, but we'll make a big concession. I talked with my dad, with Hamie, and we've decided to eliminate the contingency clause. You get $9,000 whether you make the club or not. Wow, I said. Then I said no. (laughs) (laughs) So basically this guy, I was like a grown-up business speak for, you actually stood up to me, so I talked to my dad. (laughs) He said that just just give him a little bit more, but we'll still fuck him. (laughs) Yeah. So he says no. I said I was sorry. I hated to mess up Yankee tradition, but I wasn't going to sign for a $2,000 raise, and I got up to go. So this goes back and forth for a while. Topping calls Hamie, and Hamie yells at Boughton through the phone, mm-hmm. <laughs> telling him to just fucking sign, yeah. essentially, until finally Topping asks Jim what he wants, and Jim says he's thinking about 12000 <laughs> Topping responds with 10000 and they settle for ten five. There we go. So, okay. So each concedes a little bit. Right, right. Each concedes as a, a strong negotiation tactic yeah. right he's there. the bulldog yeah hell yeah he's the bulldog he's being like all right bye yeah so after serving a six-month hitch in the army Boughton broke through spectacularly in 1963 for their ten thousand five hundred dollars that year the yankees got a 21-7 record from Boughton, a 2-5-3 era an all-star appearance and a body of work worthy of 16th place in mvp voting Holy shit. So yeah, once again, second year. Yeah. He's settled. He's ready to go. Yeah. By the end of that season, Ralph Houck had been promoted to general manager, and Boughton figured he'd let his old Padna, as Houck referred to his colleagues, off easy in the negotiations, and ask for 25000 and take twenty. You want to take a guess at what Houck offered him? Probably twelve. Fifteen five. All right. Fair, better than I thought. Yeah, better yeah. than I thought. So Boughton says, "Quote: How many guys have you had who won twenty-one games in their second year?" Houck didn't know. Well, you can't make twenty. We never double contracts. It's a rule. Whose rule? A rule Boughton was convinced that Houck made up right there on the of spot. Of course he did. Oh, fucking right, he did. <laughs> Why would that be a rule? Hey, like to his credit. Like, you got a job to do as well. That's true. Your job is to be a middleman to suppress the salaries so your owner can make more money. Yes. But that was the role at the time. That's what you signed up for. So, of course, you're going to be like, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But at the same point, Bowden was able to be ballsy when he didn't have leverage. Yeah. And now he's got leverage. He's got leverage. Yeah. So... uh, Rule uh, Hauk made up. So, Bowden is on a holdout again. And he's loving it. The phone's ringing off the hook. 
And the Yankees aren't happy because they knew they were being unfair and they didn't want anybody to know it. (laughs) Boughton is giving out straight figures, telling everybody exactly what he'd made and what they were offering and the trouble with the negotiations. So Hout called and asked, why are you telling everybody what you're making? If I don't tell them, Ralph, maybe they'll think I'm asking for ridiculous figures. They might even think I asked for 15000 last year and that I'm asking for thirty now. I just want them to know I'm being reasonable. It's a fair point. Yeah. To which Hauk replied, as Boughton described it, sounding something like... Just growled into the phone. Just just a, a noise a rich white person makes when they're finally know they don't have leverage. It's like my one of my favorite parts in the book. Like just cause it's like how he reads it, you know, yeah. like sounded something like so Button elaborated on his reasoning in Ball Four, saying, quote, you know, players are always told that they're not to discuss salary with each other. They want to keep us dumb because if Joe Pepitone knows what Tom Trash is making and Trash knows what Phil Linz is making, then we can all bargain better based on what we all know. If one of us makes a breakthrough, then we can all take advantage of it. But they want to keep us ignorant. And it works. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why you get guys signing the biggest deal. And this. this Paragraphs like this are why this fucking book caused so much shit. Yeah. I think that's more than, like, the partying stuff in the book. Yeah, but, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. So, um, what you're about to read or what you just read? No, what I just read. Yeah, like, no, it, but then, it, it's the negotiations and everything, right? Yeah, like, yeah, you're, you're, you're upsetting the powers that be mm-hmm. and just basically saying, like, any company. It's just like, yeah, you should know how much your coworkers make because mm-hmm. you're doing the same job as somebody but getting paid less or you're doing a harder or better job than somebody and getting paid less. Like That's bullshit. That's bullshit. Fucking yeah, no, it's it's amazing to see, you know, the paranoia between of the players union. Sometimes we you get like, oh, it's overblown and stuff like that. But then you think back, this is like fifty years ago. It's You wanna hear the next bullshit? Yeah, exactly. Go on. So on March eighth, Jim's birthday of all days, Hout called and told Boughton that he was going to deduct a hundred dollars from the offer every day he held out beyond March tenth. It's fucking ridiculous. It's arbitrary. <laughs> yeah. So he's got two days to decide. So he's mad. Here, so he's mad. So Jim's mad. So he yeah. calls the American League president, Joe Cronin, who tells him to, quote, go for a walk around the block, go back inside and talk some more. Hey, just go for a walk. I know, I know they're like bending you over here and you're a star. Yeah, but I'm like the president of that team and all the other teams. You know so. what solves financial negotiation problems? A nice walk. Walking. (laughs) (laughs) So he walks around, calls his dad, and in his own words, ultimately chickens out. His dad's like, I'll write a letter saying I'm going to get several letters. (laughs) I got all the letterheads here still. (laughs) (laughs) Saying I'm from Japan and they'll pay you 50,000. Yeah. Uh, So so they settle for 18.5. Okay. For that raise, Boughton won another 18 games in 1964. And at the start of 1965, Hout called to say, well, what do you want? <laughs> so he just knows. At this point, just, just sign him to a long year yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so Boughton says, ordinarily, I'd say winning 18 games and two in the World Series would be worth about a 60, or would be worth about an $8,000 raise. Good, I'll send you a contract for 26.5. So Hout jumps all over it. All right. JB. 
But in view of what happened last year and the year before that, it will have to be more. (laughs) How much more? At least 30. We couldn't do that. It's out of the question. A couple days later, Hout called and said, Does 28 sound fair to you? Bouton. Yes, it does. Very fair. In fact, there are a lot of fair figures. 28, 29, 30, 32. I'd say 33 would be too high, and 27 on down would be unfair on your part. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like, we're working in my $5,000 window I've basically created right now. Just the same way you make up bullshit. I'm making up bullshit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So Houck says, so you're prepared to sign now? Not yet. I haven't decided. A week later, Houck called again and said he'd sent the contract over for $28,000. Now, wait a minute. I never said I'd sign for that, Bouton says, but you said it was a fair figure. I said there were a lot of fair figures in there. I said 32 was fair, too. Are you going back on your word? You're trying to pull a fast one on me? I'm not trying to pull anything on you. I just haven't decided what I'm going to sign for. I just know that 28 isn't it. (laughs) God damn it, you're trying to renege on a deal, Houck shouted. Bouton shouted back. The bulldog he was not backing down. Who the hell do you think... Who the hell do you people think you are trying to bully people around? You have a goddamn one-way contract and you won't let a guy negotiate? You bulldozed me into a contract my first year when I didn't know any better? You tried to find me for not signing last year and now you're trying to catch me in a lie? Why don't you just be decent about it? What's an extra thousand or two to the New York Yankees? You wonder why you get your bad publicity? Well, here it is. As soon as the people find out about the numbers you're talking about that realize how mean and stupid you are. (laughs) That's his friend. Yeah. (laughs) He's got a point. Yeah. So when the contract came, it was 28,000. Bout called and told Houck he wouldn't sign it and he wouldn't pay unless he got 30. No deal, Houck hung up. (laughs) But moments later, called back and said, okay, you got your 30, but under (laughs) one condition, you don't tell anybody you're getting it. You probably called the American League president. He was like, go for a walk. You'll give yeah. him 30 after <laughs> exactly. the walk. <laughs> so Jim agreed, but eventually relented to reporters' questions and continued to make his salary public information. <laughs> so for me, that's like a point of admiration that Jim Bouton knows his worth. And despite the lack of leverage in negotiating in the beginning, at least because of the reverse uh, reserve clause at this point in history, he doesn't back down and he's willing to call their bluff the Yankees and even go home if he has to. It sounds like, yeah, he just absolutely. I, I definitely expected the, the bulldog kind of thing to be a mound thing, not a, uh, not no, a, well, I think it was, it but was, it was but just everything in general. Like he was just like, Whatever, I'll go back and get a regular-ass job. Like, I'm good at pitching. Do you want me to pitch for you? <laughs> then pay me money. Yeah. You know, like... I won 39 games in two years, yeah, and it's like, the 60s, so that means a lot. Yeah, like, <laughs> come on. Uh, so, but I will say, in the Yankees' defense, Bouton would only win four games in 1965, Oof. and only 15 over the next five years having been relegated to the bullpen for the most part. He remained on the side of labor his whole life. In the second chapter of Ball Four, Jim tells a tale of solidarity with his fellow striking players. Although somewhat coincidentally, Bouton had signed a contract before he knew that there was going to be a player's strike, and despite having sympathy for what Marvin Miller and the Players Union was trying to accomplish, 
He had signed a contract and was obligated to report to Tempe, Arizona. All right. Right? Interesting. So he's like, sorry, guys, I signed a contract. Yeah, and I'm obligated to go. I support your strike. Yeah. But I have to go. Uh, yeah, right. All yeah, right. Okay, hold on. It continues. Yep. But he changed his mind. Ooh. After a conversation with a rookie named Lou Pinella. Ooh. And he also wasn't going to go without accommodations for his family that had not yet been sorted out. So it's kind of, it mentions in the book that like he, he was going to report and then he changed his mind to strike, but no one really knew that he was striking anyway because he wasn't going to go anyway because he's like, well, I'm not going if you don't have a place for Bobby and the kids. Yeah. You know, so everyone was like, ah, he's just staying home because his wife doesn't have a place to stay yet. And what, why the hell does his wife not have a place to stay? Once again, stingy Yankees. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Bouton had attended the union meeting at the Biltmore in New York, and because the pilots were not officially a team yet, they had no union rep. So, oh, so it's the pilots. It's, it's the not, pilots. Yeah, now. he's on yeah, the Yeah, this is yeah. like, yeah. 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 Um, the three or four Seattle players in attendance were told to call four or five teammates each and tell them what happened. Jim reached Lou in Florida, and Pinella said that his impulse was to report that he was scared it would count against him if he didn't, and that he was just a rookie looking to make the big leagues and didn't want anybody to get angry with him but also that he'd thought it over carefully and decided he should support the other players in the strike. So he wasn't reporting. And Jim said, that impressed the hell out of me, Boughton wrote. There's a kid with a lot more at stake than I, a kid risking a once-in-a-lifetime shot, and suddenly I felt a moral obligation to the players. I decided not to go down. Wow. Yeah. Lou Pinello, working-class hero. Yeah. And I never would have thought. Yeah, no, yeah. I don't know why. He just looks angry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is what he was probably angry about. Uh, so about 400 players stayed home for 10 days of spring training. Mm -hmm. And on February 26th, the owners met most of the players' demands and things got underway as normal. Mm -hmm. Right? So in 1969, Boughton, who had lost the speed of his fastball and the control of his curve decides to resurrect his old knuckleball in an attempt to hang on. He's been sold to the pilots by the Yankees for $20,000, and the Yankees paid $8,000 of Boughton's $22,000 salary, which means that Jim was sold for less than half the waiver price at the time. Quote, makes a man think, he said begrudgingly. <laughs> And he also made the most important decision of his life. He decided he'd write a book. He began to compile notes of his thoughts and of the conversations with teammates, coaches, fans, managers, anybody really. He later said that the conversations are where most of the book's material came from. He took those notes to his friend, editor Leonard Schechter, and together they broke the baseball world. It was an honest look into the world of baseball that took you into the dugouts and onto the buses and into the hotels where the light shone into some of baseball's darkest corners and uncovered some secrets the general public would rather not think about. It exposed truths about their heroes that vilified but also humanized the players whose baseball establishment had sold as infallible. It was the truth, and as they say, the truth hurts. Mickey Mantle, a drunk... Widespread amphetamine used to enhance performance and quell hangovers, womanizing, homoerotic clubs of players who only were initiated by kissing one another, 
what? <laughs> yep, that's in there. That's in there. That's in there. I was like, I knew about the meth. I knew about the alcohol. I knew about the womanizing. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the whole kissing thing. Yeah, was, and then uh, there was, yeah, it was like a club, like a club, where you will put it in quotations or whatever. It's just like a faction of players among the league who had like snuck a kiss on each other. And like those guys would all hang out together. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So just, uh, yeah, it's, wow, I wish, I'm so happy society's changed. Those guys kiss each other. They just hang out on their own. They're yep. regular. Their wives get along great, too. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, this was what the public saw through the window into the previously thought clean baseball world that Balfour drew back the shades on. Bouton became a pariah. Some players stopped speaking to him, and Bowie Kuhn, commissioner of baseball at the time, even called Boughton to his office and asked him to sign a prepared statement that claimed, quote, the whole book was lies, and it was Leonard Schechter who sensationalized it all. Jim, of course, ever loyal to his friend and to his own principles, told Kuhn where to stick his prepared statement. I love that. So, Jim, we see you've written a book. Um, very Makes us int- look pretty bad. Very interesting. You're a good storyteller. But these are lies, right? <laughs> these are all lies. These are lies, Mr. Bowden? Yeah, so you just wrote this and it's all just lies and we're willing to just forget about it as you just and, sign this And statement. that guy that's a very close friend of yours, he is a piece of shit, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, did, I realized that it was just a big misunderstanding and you, you're just going to straighten it out for us and uh, just... Just sign here, uh, and uh, and uh, you can continue to suck for the Yankees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not surprising to know this after the fact. Jim was essentially out of baseball by that point, but it seems perhaps unbeknownst to him or anybody at the time that he was on the path to accomplishing what he always wished to do. Bouton always had a great self-awareness about why he wanted to do what he did. Quote, the dreams are the answer. They're why I wanted to be a big league ball player and why I still want to get back on top again. I enjoy the fame of being a big league ball player. I get a tremendous kick out of people wanting my autograph. In fact, I feel hurt if I go someplace where I think I should be recognized and no one asked me for it. I enjoy signing them and posing for pictures and answering reporters' questions and having people recognize me on the street. Al Ferrara of the Dodgers said he always wanted to see his picture on a bubblegum card. Well, me too. It's an ego trip. So, but even though Bouton in the first place wanted to get in the big leagues for recognition and for the adulation, it was not lost on him the importance to give back and have a positive influence on the lives of others. And I believe that's why he pushed forward with Ball 4, and all of the publicity, despite the controversy and what it meant for any possible resurrection of his career as a big league pitcher. Quote, I admit that sometimes I am troubled by the way I make my living. I would like to change the world. I would like to have an influence on people's lives. And Jim knew the value of being a public figure. Quote, I think I'll have more value at anything I do later on for having been a baseball player. I believe that, as foolish as it is, Stan Musial has more influence with American kids than any geography teacher. Ted Williams is better known than any of our poets. Mickey Mantle more admired than our scientists. Perhaps I can put my own fame to work later on. You hear that, kids? You want to change the world? Become a baseball player. That's right. (laughs) But honestly, though, it is a good reflection. Because especially at this time in society, uh, you know, where, you know, generations earlier... 
there wasn't so much that celebrity culture and no. stuff. And now it's just like, he's like, yeah, it's amazing being famous. Like mm-hmm. being famous is the coolest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. But then I kind of realized like, I gotta yeah, you do more than that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He can't, he realized that he could give back so much more with having that. But I love, I, I love how non-humble he was about it, though. He was like, "No, no, don't get me wrong. You don't get me wrong. That I want to sign autographs that for was you. Fucking great. I want you to know who the fuck I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm Jim Bowden, the bulldog. <laughs> would you like my autograph? <laughs> and would you like me to save the world? I'm just gonna stretch it. Oh, oh, crack my knuckles. Oh, my rings are in oh, the way. My two World Series rings. Oh, oh my, my god. You know what? Yogi Berra, a guy I know, uh, he was telling me a story. <laughs> is, I don't think this is what Jim Bowen was like at all, by the way. This riff. <laughs> Quote There's pettiness in baseball and meanness and stupidity, stupidity beyond belief, and everything else bad that you'll find outside of baseball. I haven't enjoyed every single minute of it, and when I've refused to conform to some of the more Neanderthal aspects of baseball thinking, I've been an outcast. Yet, there's been a tremendous lot of good in it for me, and I wouldn't trade any of my years in it for anything I can think of. And that's my first part about Jim Bouton. That is... So, I, I would say, I knew nothing. I have the book sitting at home. I'm excited to read it. Uh, that it's just I I had no idea, especially his impact I guess on the the labor movement mm-hmm. back then as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, and that's huge. Yeah, and we didn't even talk about the drugs or the alcohol. No, that much. we're going to talk about the drugs and the alcohol oh. a lot next time. That's oh. what I was going to say. Like this is only the beginning to give you like some background about what kind of dude he was and like his sort of principles. Next time I'm going to talk about the crazy things that got written about in the book and what the controversy did for his career. And yeah, I'll tell you about how he got cast out of baseball circles, uh, how his demeanor and honesty filled the world with love, and the telling of the truth through tragedy ultimately would bring him and the Yankees to reconcile, and Jim would have his redemption on the biggest stage. It just goes to show you that as Jim wrote in the last line of his timeless memoir that, quote, you can spend a great deal of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out that it was the other way around the whole time. I love that quote. Yeah. Ah, well, I'm looking forward to part two whenever we do that. Uh, I'm just stoked that that you've you know gone through so many volumes of Ball Four and and just are telling these stories from it. It's definitely worth. I mean, obviously, there's so much more in it than, mm-hmm. than oh, what we talked. About. I was amazed when I actually was like doing the research for this this part i was like going through the book and highlighting quotes and my favorite parts and favorite characters and like kind of getting some character development for like all these different characters and when i actually started like the other day compiling it together and say okay now i can put this together and make this an episode yeah like fuck me like i got into like through the introduction and like a little bit into like the first chapter and i was like i already have a 40 minute episode like nice you know so nice um yeah, well, that was amazing. That was great. I can't believe the audacity. And then, like, even when he just didn't, he had nothing. It was just like, okay, I'll go home, I guess. I'll go home, yeah. He he just, did. Yeah, I just love his presence. That yeah. He's just like, well, you guys can have me or not have me. And yeah. this is what it's going to cost. And if not, I'll go home and do something else and make the exact same money. Yep. You know? Wow. That's an amazing story. Uh 
Yeah, can't wait for it. Uh, can't wait for opening day, which is tomorrow or yes. today, or it already happened. If yep. you're listening to this later, yeah, yep. Daniel. Yeah, Daniel's stoked. Daniel's so, uh, stoked. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and on Instagram at Doing Baseball. Give us a review or yeah. a rating, whatever. Yes. And do until, both. Yeah, do both of those things. And until next time, uh, I'm Sean and I'm Ed, and we were doing the baseball. Okay, bye. Springtime. Mm-hmm.